5, verse 21. So if you have your Bible turned there, it's also in your bulletin. We're returning to our series in the Gospel of Mark. So we were taking a break for a little while. We were in this Gospel for five chapters or so, and then we took a break to talk about vocation for six weeks, turned into nine weeks because I had to smack my face on the on the floor and get a concussion, and so we've been out of Mark for a little while, uh, but we're returning uh, to it today, and uh, be, as I mentioned, we have another congregation that, that is uh, doing the same thing, it's doing Mark with us, and so we're going to kind of catch up with them, maybe uh, skip around a little bit, and then follow, get, get on track maybe in chapter 7, but I had to come back to this passage today. I had to return to this because it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, where Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, Jairus' daughter, and he heals the woman with an issue of blood. And there's just so much here. And I'm guessing that, you know, if you were to poll all Christians and ask them the question, you know, what is, what is the one question that you would ask God if you could have the opportunity to, say, to ask Him one thing? I guarantee you that the number one thing that would, the number one result of that poll would be that people would ask about what is traditionally been called the problem of evil or the problem of pain. It gets at this question of why does a good God allow suffering? Why does he allow death? Why does he allow all these hard things in my life? And I know for a fact that when you poll high school students, that's what you get. When I was a youth pastor, I did that poll and we did a whole series based on questions we would ask God and that was the number one by far. We had little stacks of questions based on topic, and the biggest stack so f- by far was the question, why does God allow hard things to happen in my life? Why doesn't he just make it stop? And I think many of us wonder that, but I actually think that there's actually a bigger question than that, and it, if we take a moment to think about that question, there's actually something beyond that that we wonder even more. Because the, the simple Christian answer to that question is that God does not cause evil, right? We caused evil. We brought evil into the world. And in doing so, we created all this hardship and suffering, and it spiraled out of control. And that's like the short answer to that question. But then there, immediately, it doesn't solve the problem for us because... What we then want to ask right after that is, okay, well, if that happened and if it's our fault and it's spiraling out of control and there's all this suffering and pain and death, now the bigger question might be, why doesn't he take care of it now? Why does he wait? Why does he make us remain in suffering And that may be even a bigger question. It's one I want to talk about this morning. First, I want to read the passage for us. It's from Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Let's read this together. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And you looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. So the question we're considering this morning is this. Why does God allow us to wait in suffering? Why does he allow us to remain in suffering? And I'm going to reference a book that I've done so, so many times that I'm, I'm guessing there's going to be a revolt at some point because it's just such, it's such a perfect book. And it's... It's a classic. It's A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's just, it's the key to life, the universe, and everything. I mean, I love this book so much. And if you're not familiar with it, short little book um, written about uh, the Stalinist war camp called a gulag in the, in 1951. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this about communist Russia, and, and he describes the day of this prisoner, Shukov, and, and from start to finish, this one day in his life. And what it is, is it's a masterpiece of pacing. That's really, well, that's really the genius of Solzhenitsyn's work, or one of the geniuses of it. It's a masterpiece of pacing. I mean, he takes one day in the life of a prisoner, and almost nothing of significance happens in the book. There's no huge action. There's no war. There's no fighting. All we get are the details of this prisoner's day. We get what he ate, how he woke up, how he tried to fool the guards, and, and, and you know, we, we, he finds a shovel when they're out working, and he gets a little extra bread at mealtime, and it's just all these little details, this pacing throughout his day, and yet what it fills for us is this huge picture. We get a few details in one day, and yet it fills for us this whole understanding, not whole understanding, I should say, but it gets us a long way into understanding the historical situation that was going on in this time. 
It fills you with this narrative, even though it's so short. And you don't really see the full truth of the conditions, right? Uh, Solzhenitsyn tells us this is one day of 3,653 for this prisoner. That's the last line of the book. One day. And so to really understand Shukov's experience, to really understand something about a Stalinist war camp, you would need to have been with him for all those 3,653 days, wouldn't you? And yet, in such a short narrative, we're given so much And that's what great stories do. They compress truth into manageable pieces, right? We know this. This is what stories do. They take ideas and truth and they put them in narrative form and we understand them even more. It's not because it gives us actual reality all the time. I mean, this is true. I'll give you one more example. If you watch an action movie, watch yourself. When you get to those parts that seem unrealistic, you say, oh, that's so unrealistic that that just happened. The whole thing is unreal. You're watching something that likely took place over months or years, right? And yet you're, you're, you're suspending reality so that in two hours you can experience something. And so, you know, if there's like a master and he's saying, you know, this, this person will become this great warrior or whatever. And then the next scene over, they're this great warrior. And you're like, oh, that's so unrealistic. But let me tell you what it takes for you to, uh, to not feel like that's unrealistic. 25 second little montage in the middle where you see this person training every day. You see them running, you see them failing, and in 25 seconds, you can, okay, that's, that's what happened. They trained for a long time. And so you're able to suspend reality, to see this truth. And it's amazing, Solzhenitsyn, movies, that such a short story can take us so far. It's not full reality, but it is so far into it that it becomes more manageable. And that's what I want us to see this morning as we approach this question of why God allows us to remain in suffering. In this short narrative, this, this telescopes us into something that Jesus wants us to see because it's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has to do with the resurrection. And, uh, and there's a, this is a happy ending for everyone involved. And it's like it's compressed into a narrative. And yet where we live most of the time is in the waiting and yet it's helpful for us to see this story and then to, to see how God uses it. And this story, even though it doesn't fully solve that question, that's what I'm trying to say this morning. If you have the question, why does God allow us to wait in suffering? To know God is to have been God. To have been there from the beginning. To see His mind. To understand all of His purposes and to completely trust and know Him. And none of us do that because we're so limited We don't see everything He sees. We're not everywhere that He is. And yet we ask these questions and it's right for us to, but know this, we don't know the full reality, and yet we're given this so that we can go so far. And it makes our experience manageable. And I really do think it does, and I think the Christian faith is the most manageable way to approach this question. Why does God allow us to wait in suffering? I want us to look at the ex- at experiencing suffering and then managing suffering. Not to solve the question, but to use the truth to make it more manageable. Let's do this together. Experiencing suffering first. And we get two pictures of suffering here. 
And one of them is severe, and one of them is chronic. And these are the two kinds of suffering that we experience as well. The severe one comes first. In verse 21 through 24, we see Jairus, leader of the synagogue, comes in and he falls before Jesus. And he says in verse 23, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. His daughter is at the point of death. Now that is, that's suffering right there. Your daughter is at the point of death. A little context. We hear from Luke's Gospel, who also tells us this story, that this is his only daughter. This is the only daughter this man has, and he is desperate. He, we're told that he's a ruler of the synagogue. Why is that important? Well, Jesus is not very popular in the synagogue. Just a couple of chapters earlier, he makes a lot of enemies in the synagogue. And so this is someone who is, is employed by the synagogue. And so he, what he's doing is he's coming and he's laying before Jesus He's humbling himself. We don't know what his private opinions about Jesus are. We don't know that he secretly was rooting for him or if he was his enemy before. But either way, this would have been a show that people would have recognized would have been a display of, of just laying himself out completely. Humiliating experience. And so we see that severe suffering in him. And then there's this intrusion as Mark often does, we've seen before, he creates a little sandwich story. And Jairus and his daughter become the bread of the sandwich, and the meat is this other story, this intruding story here about a lady who has suffered from an issue of blood. Now her suffering is also real, but it's more of a chronic nature, meaning it's ongoing. She's been hemorrhaging blood. What that means significantly in this time, the life is found in the blood. That's in, that's in Leviticus. That's, that's the way that the Hebrews thought about life. And so literally this woman's life has been draining away slowly. Not only that, she has been ritually impure for years. When you have this issue of blood, you are impure, meaning you cannot go and worship in the temple. She couldn't do that. She was prohibited from touching people. She was prohibited from sexual intercourse. She was prohibited from all kinds of things in Jewish law because of this issue of blood. And so for years, she has suffered much. And not only that, there's insult and injury. Not only has her life been bleeding away, but all of her savings and her well-being have been bleeding away as well. It says in verse 26, she had suffered much under many physicians. And spent all that she had, but was no better, but grew worse. She had spent everything and also experienced a lot of pain. She would suffered much because of this illness. When you stop and look at the parallels of this story, we're going to see several between the two narratives that are going on here. But the first one to see is this. How long has the woman been suffering and how old is the girl? 12 years in both cases. The woman has been suffering for as long as the girl has been alive. And now the girl is in this point of crisis. And it's she and it's her father who are having to do the waiting. This woman has been waiting to be healed for 12 years and now she reaches Jesus 
and she puts Jairus and his daughter into a position of waiting for the first time. And you can imagine what this must have been like for Jairus as he sees Jesus start interacting with this woman when his daughter is at the point of death. Everybody's having to wait. They're just waiting in different ways and at different times. And as Jesus talks to this woman, you know that Jairus is losing his mind. I would be. My daughter is at the point of death. And Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And there has to be this search party. like who, All the people that touched him. And then they identify who the woman is. And then he speaks to her. And he says very significantly to her after she's been healed, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. And you think about Jairus right now. Who cares who touched you? Why are you calling her daughter? What about my daughter? Why are you waiting? Jesus does this frequently. He waits. He did it when his best friend Lazarus died. When Lazarus dies, Mary and Martha call for Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way. Several days journey. He takes the long way around so that Lazarus will be dead in the tomb for several days before he arrives. Why are you waiting? Most of us have experienced suffering, maybe not this severe, maybe we have experienced something severe, but we, we have these experiences of chronic and severe suffering. I will tell you, some of you know that the scariest day of my life um, was when my second-born son, Rhodes, was born. The day he was born, Rhodes came to the world. It was the worst day of my life. He, it was the, also one of the best days of my life, of course, but when he came out into the world, he had the cord wrapped around his neck really tight. He wasn't responding. He was blue all over, and, and they immediately rushed 10 people into the room, and they were hovering over Rhodes and trying to get him to breathe, and then at the same time, my wife started to seize up at some eclampsia or something related to that, and she stopped responding as well. And so she had this post-birth seizure, and 10 more people came in and were over her. And so I was standing in between them. Severe crisis. Not knowing what to do, barely able to pray. But what am I supposed to do in that circumstance? It's just totally out of my control as the two people that I love very much are not responding and not seemingly alive. And they both started breathing again. Amazingly, the Lord answered that prayer even though I wasn't able to pray it. And then everything was fine. And we said, well, you know, because of the seizure and everything, maybe we should wait a little while to have, uh, to have another child. And uh, four months later, we were pregnant again. Um, and, and then that began 10 months of a different kind of suffering because she had had these seizures before and, and we were worried about it. And so um, we had to spend 10 months thinking, well, maybe this is going to happen again. And so for 10 months, we had to go in for all these extra doctor's visits and we had to stay up late thinking about this. We had to wait. So severe suffering, chronic suffering, most of us have experienced something of one or both. All of us have a version of that. And there's waiting. 
in both. There's also opportunities for faith in both. You know, it occurred to me this week as I was reading this passage over and over again, like, there's so many people in this story. Why does Jesus spend his time with these two? Why does he follow Jairus? And why does he respond to this woman when literally we're told several times in the passage that throngs of people are just crowding around Jesus? And what are they doing? They're asking for things, of course. They're wanting things. They're pressing in. They're trying to get him, as we see in other places in the gospel, to arbitrate disputes in their family. They want things from Jesus. They want healing. Everyone is pressing in. But what we see in Jairus and this woman with an issue of blood is their faith. And their faith is actually commended several times in the passage. What does that mean? It means they made bold requests of Jesus and then they boldly believed those things that he said. We've already talked about Jairus' boldness. He came in to the synagogue, or the synagogue leader and laid himself out in humility. And he believes. He made this bold request to Jesus. And he believes that Jesus has the power to do it. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. So regardless of what he thinks during the week, he knows that when his daughter's at the point of death, he has faith in Jesus The woman is bold as well. Can you imagine the desperation and the boldness it would take for a woman who's been sick for 12 years, impure for 12 years, to have the audacity to touch not just someone, but the most popular rabbi in the whole region. She touches him with her unclean hands. She makes that bold move towards him. And she's rewarded. Her faith, Jesus says, makes her well. She has this bold faith, bold action followed by bold faith. And it's important for us as we think about this because how many of us need things from Jesus and how many of us are experiencing suffering? And the world is is full of people who are bumping into Jesus. Somewhat following him, thinking that that he is good, maybe thinking that maybe he's useful, maybe he's interesting, maybe he would be worthwhile to know, maybe the church is a good place. But there's a difference between those who bump into Jesus and those who reach out and touch him in bold faith. He responds to those who reach out to him in faith. And he responds well to the woman who reaches out to him, even though she was so bold. That's why she's trembling, by the way. She comes before him trembling with fear because she knows she's been found out. She was hoping she could get away with it. And yet she confesses what she's done that's against the law, so to speak. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. What does it mean to have that kind of faith? It means that you know that you need Jesus, that you have the boldness to approach him with humility, to lay yourself out before him and to know that he's the only answer to your suffering. 
Whatever suffering that may be, maybe a personal suffering because of your sin, or suffering because of someone else's sin, or suffering because we just live in a broken world, the only answer is to reach out boldly to Jesus and to receive what He has to offer. That's how we experience suffering with faith. I want to talk now about managing suffering, because a lot of people would say, well, that doesn't really let God off the hook. The fact that he heals this woman, he raises this girl from the dead, you know, that, that he ends suffering for some people, that's, that's not enough. I mean, maybe he caused the suffering in the first place, and so to say that he can fix it is not to say that it should have been there in the first place. And so what people will do is they'll say, you know, the suffering in the world is so bad, and, and God is, seems, you know, to, to be in charge of everything, and so th- what they do is they walk away from God. I can't believe in a God who does that or allows that. What I want to say to people like that and what I do say to people who say that is it's not like the problem goes away just because you, believe, you don't believe in God anymore. You still have the problem of pain. You still have the problem of dealing with the world full of ugly, sinful things. You still have all of these issues And now you have them without God. So the problem of evil doesn't go away. The problem of pain doesn't go away. What you've done is you've traded a problem of evil that you don't understand for a problem of evil with no hope. Of course you don't understand. To understand is to be God. Flannery O'Connor says, you know, a God you understand would be less than yourself. If you understood the mind of God, you would be God. And yet, the story takes us so far. It's not like he says, well, then you'll never understand, so therefore, just be quiet and suffer. That's not what he does. He teaches us how to manage the suffering. And so I want to talk about that now. And there's something we need to avoid and there's something we need to embrace. We need to avoid painful accusations that lead us away from God. Avoid painful accusations that lead us away from God. Let's talk about several of these things. In our not understanding sometimes, what we do is we accuse God of things that makes us walk away from Him. First, we might accuse Him that He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Maybe He did once, He doesn't seem to care now. He doesn't care what's going on in my life. He's too distant, or I'm too small, or the the problem's too complicated. He doesn't care. We see Jesus caring over and over again in this passage. Verse 23, when Jairus says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Knowing what was going to happen, knowing the situation, Jesus went with him. Wouldn't it have been so easy for Jesus to say, I mean, you got to realize there's a huge crowd around him, right? That's what it says. He's on the other side of the sea now, and there's this huge crowd. I mean, what Jesus could have said to the man is, I'm so sorry for your situation. But, you see what I have to do right now. I'm, I'm teaching right now. I'm, I'm helping these people. 
but he immediately follows him. And we see Jesus' care as he turns towards the woman who touches him and reaches out to him. And he sees, we see his care for her. And when the bad news, the news that Jairus fears the most comes, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? What does Jesus do? He says, do not fear, only believe. He says, in essence, it's okay. You can trouble me. I'm not troubled by this. I'm not troubled by you asking to be relieved of your suffering. He cares about us. And so whenever we start to believe, whenever anybody in this passage starts to believe that God doesn't care, He shows that He does. And we need to believe that as well. That can be an accusation we make that, that he's, He doesn't care. Here's the second accusation that we make. Maybe He's unaware. We start to wonder, maybe this, this situation that I'm in is more complicated than even God can handle. Maybe he set up the world to spin in a certain way and now he's not intricately involved in all the different things and so he doesn't know what everybody's thinking. And so he's kind of distant from my situation. He's unaware. He's kind of clueless. Maybe he's like the Greek gods. Maybe you know he gets bored with human suffering and therefore entertains himself. It's interesting in this passage how much people make fun of Jesus. And they kind of treat him like he's clueless. Did you see that? You know, when, when he says, somebody touched me, his disciples make fun of him. And everybody's confused. Like, Jesus doesn't have a right to say, who touched me, right? <laughs> um, oh, Jesus, you know, how can you say that? There's all these people pressing in around you. Come on. As if the, te- the great teacher, the great healer that they've been following isn't aware that people have been pressing in on him. And you think he's kind of clueless. Then when he gets to the little girl, they laugh at him for saying that she's sleeping. They don't even take a moment to try to understand what he might mean by that. They hold him in derision for what they believe he thinks is wrong. And we can do the same thing. We can say, you know, God's, he's just kind of unaware. Or if he really knew everything that was going on in my life, if he understood, then he would do things the way that I want him to do them. He's unaware. What does the scripture say? One of the best verses we go to for comfort in 2 Peter says that the Lord is not slow as some count slowness. But he's patient, not wishing that anyone should perish, perish, but all would repent. What is Peter reminding us of? He's not unaware of how you perceive time. He just does so differently. He knows everything. He's the one who made the world. He's the one who sustains the world. He understands every single area of your life. He's not unaware of your issues. He does exactly what you would do if you had all of the pieces of the puzzle. But you don't. And he does. So we can say he doesn't care. We can say he's unaware. And then sometimes we maybe start to believe that he's unable. 
This thing that I'm in is so big, I'm not even sure that God can get me out of it. And yet he proves us wrong even with that because he actually does heal and he does raise a girl from the dead. He solves all of the problems even while they had to wait for it. So we need to be careful of our painful accusations, the accusations we make in pain against God because the Scripture tells us that those things are not true. And that's part of managing suffering is to know what is your heart's response when something painful comes up. What are you tempted to believe right away about God? And then we need to turn to what the Scripture says and see the comforting truths that lead us closer to God. Not solve it. To solve it would be God. But to manage it, the Scripture says some very important things to us about our suffering. It says three things. It says that death is the enemy, healing is good, resurrection is ultimate. Death is the enemy, healing is good, resurrection is ultimate. Death is the enemy. Look at verse 39 when Jesus deals with this child's death. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? These are professional mourners. That's what they had in that culture. These people that would come in and just raise their voices. And so these were paid people to come in. They'd already believed that she was dead, and so they're making this noise. And he says, stop it. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the, father, the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He calls death sleep here. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not saying that she is physically asleep and that he needs to wake her up. That's not what he's saying. Death is often referred to in the scripture as sleep. And if you think about it, sleep is a kind of death. Every time we close our eyes and we drift away unconsciously, we do, we do nothing actively to, breathe, to bring ourselves out of that, do we? Something happens physiologically, sure, to bring us up, but we're not actively saying to ourselves, now wake up. That is an act of faith every time you go to sleep. And so the Bible compares death to sleep. It doesn't mean she's not dead. So then why does Jesus say she is asleep? He says... This because this great enemy called death, and it is a great enemy. We look at scriptures, what Revelation says death is the enemy that's last to be destroyed, it is the greatest enemy. And he looks at this great enemy and he says, and what he does is he tames it. He's saying this kind of death for her is temporary. It is as if it is sleep. And what he's basically comforting them with is this. Look, if I'm holding her hands, then even the worst enemy, death, is like taking a nap. Because I can bring her out of it. Death is the enemy. Healing is good. When Jesus speaks to the woman with an issue of blood, he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus heals people all the time. It's part of his ministry. He doesn't heal people with all of his time, though. 
Even though he does it frequently, he's not always healing people. But every time he does, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be healed. And so healing should be asked for. And sometimes we kind of get these two things mixed up a little bit in the church. And we start saying things like, well, to die is, to, is good. We should stop saying that kind of thing. You should pray for healing. If you are sick, the Scriptures tell us that we should. And so death is not good. And so sometimes we say, you know, it would be good for them to die because then they could be with the Lord forever. Okay, but the greatest good would be what was the Garden of Eden, right? Where we had the presence of God without the presence of death. And so it's not good. Death is not good. Even though, of course, God uses it for his purposes and for his good. It itself is not good. It is the definition of a necessary evil because of sin and brokenness in the world. And so, when we come to death and we come to healing, we need to make sure we get the order right. Death is the enemy. Healing is good. How do we deal with that? We should hate death. We should pray for healing. But we should hope in the resurrection. We should hate death. We should pray for healing. But we should hope in the resurrection. Because the ultimate hope is not healing. It is good. Death is bad. Healing is good. Resurrection is ultimate. The story that we've been given is this. That the world is completely broken and it deserves death. And so do we. And we will die. It's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. And that's true. But for those who are in Christ, there is a resurrection. And that resurrection is the ultimate good news, not the healing. Healing may come, and that's good. But ultimately, it's resurrection. When Jesus, he takes her by the hand, verse 41, and he says to this child, Talitha kumi. Notice a couple of things there. He just says, I mean, Talitha kumi, that's, that's just such a beautiful word, Talitha it's a, it's a diminutive. It's like a, it's a pet name. So you say honey or sugar. It says little girl. Arise. Same word that Mark uses later for the resurrection of Jesus. One more parallel that we see as we close today between this woman who had an issue of blood and this little girl. Notice what they do with their hands. <laughs> The woman reaches out to Jesus with her hands and takes hold of him for healing. But when Jesus approaches the little girl, she's not able to do that. He takes her hands in his. So the woman reached out to Jesus for healing, and that was good. But when Jesus comes and gives us the ultimate, he takes us by the hand and he raises us out of our slumber, out of our death. Why did he have to take the girl's hands? Because she was helpless. She was dead. And this is the climax of the story. She had been prayed for. People had been reaching out, so to speak, to God over and over again. And he had not given her life. And yet, Jesus comes and takes hold of her. And the climax of this story mimics the climax of the whole scriptures and all of our lives, which is the cross and the resurrection at the center of history where Jesus dies. And he does so because we are all dead. That's what Ephesians tells us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no life in us. 
And what's true of us spiritually will be true of us physically. Because we all die. But what he does here is he reminds us that he is in charge of that resurrection. I mean, Jesus died and then was raised from the dead so that your death will only be the death of sleep. It will be a temporary death. And afterwards, there will be life on the other side. But listen, you cannot reach out to Jesus for that. You can ask him for healing, and he may grant that. But you can't reach out to him for life because you're already dead. You can't wake yourself up in the morning, and you can't wake yourself up spiritually. You have to be awakened by him. And the scripture talks about two resurrections, one that happens in the heart and one that happens at the end of history. And the first resurrection is when Jesus comes and He makes you alive. He makes you awake to His purposes in the world. And He wakes you up and shows you, this is real. This is me. I want you to see that this is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when that resurrection happens, you become alive. You're made alive. You're dead on the bottom of the ocean, but He brings you up. And He makes you alive together with God, as Scripture says. That's the first resurrection. It's called conversion. And then those who are resurrected the first time are part of the second resurrection, which is at the end of time when everything that has been dead forever, over this whole period of time, everything that's died will be made alive again when Jesus returns. The last time that I preached on this passage um, was at the funeral of a 16-year-old girl. Zoe was a girl in my youth group a number of years ago. She had a brain aneurysm in the middle of the night out of nowhere. Then she was hooked up to life support, instantly dead, but brought back to life with the support. And then we prayed. We prayed for her healing. I was there in the hospital for days with them, praying for her healing. And that was good to do. It's good to pray for healing. And when she died, we were sad about the enemy. And we hated death for what it had done to her. And that is also good. To hate death, to pray for healing are both good. But when we gathered several hundred people to honor her life and to remember her, we didn't talk so much about those things as we talked about the resurrection. Because while those two things are good, the resurrection is ultimate. And I said to them that one day they will say to Zoe, just as he said to this little girl, Talithakumi, this girl will rise like everything else. And dead in Christ will rise first. Meet him in the air. And we get to be with Jesus forever. And so it's important that we approach it the right way. Because knowing the ending is resurrection doesn't take away all of our questions now. It really doesn't. It's okay for you to have these questions. It's okay for you to not understand the mind of God. But he gives us enough in this story and throughout the scriptures to show us this is manageable. To have faith in him is the best way to approach these things. Wouldn't you rather be approaching these things in his presence than far away from him. Because big picture, the story is that death is the great enemy, but it's tame compared to what he does. 
He brings resurrection victory. Let's pray.